Hi everyone, it's Chris Lasarenko from Revolutions Per Movie. The show is a completely independent affair, so if you feel like supporting the show, the best way is to go over to patreon.com slash revolutionspermovie, where in exchange for your support, you can get weekly bonus Revolution Per Movie episodes, stickers, membership cards, upcoming guests include Anne Magnuson of Bong Water, Bob Burt of Sonic Youth and Pussy Galore, Jerry Casali of Devo, and Homer Flynn of The Cryptid Corporation, representing the band The Residents. So please consider supporting the show over at patreon.com slash revolutionspermovie. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Enjoy the show. Is this me, y'all? Wants to hear some more or something, man? Does anybody want to hear anything in particular? Hello, everybody. Welcome to a special edition of Coffee with Krumenacher, the Mojo Nixon edition. And my name is Crystal Serenko. I'm the host of Revolutions Per Movie. Uh, I'm a musician. I've been in bands like Eyelids and Guided by Voices. And I also owned a video store in Portland, Oregon for over two decades. And I started a podcast where guests would choose a music narrative film or a music documentary to talk about. Uh, Mojo Nixon had got a hold of me uh, a couple of weeks ago and had a great idea for doing a Revolution Per Movie episode. And sadly, that is not going to happen. He passed away um, last week. But he wanted to do a replacements documentary that hadn't been done. It was in his head. He knew what he wanted to call it. He knew what would be in it, why it should be made why it couldn't be made. And I thought it was brilliant. Um, and it got me to talking to Victor, Victor Krumenacher, who was here. Victor is a musician who's been in Camper Van Beethoven, Monks of Doom, The Third Mind, and is a lifer. And we have a Patreon for Revolutions Per Movie, since we're an independently funded program, where we do exclusive shows. And one of the shows we do is Coffee with Krumenacher, talking about his times basically his his life and music, but also jumping around at various times, like, tell me about your work with Eugene Chadbourne. Tell me about the time you backed Tiny Tim. And one of the things that has happened in Victor's life is Victor got to know and tour with Mojo Nixon. And we wanted to make this episode available to everybody instead of on the Patreon, just to kind of do a tribute to Mojo Nixon. It was amazing to see how many people um, have been writing lovely things. You know, I even heard from Ann Magnuson, who uh, starred with him in uh, Great Balls of Fire and said he was fantastic to work with. Victor, good to see you. You have your coffee? Uh, I do. My coffee is right here. What we do with coffee with Krumenacher is Victor usually does not know what we're going to talk about. I spring various aspects. Except this uh, Except this time. 
Did you know Mojo before Camper Van Beethoven started touring with him? What's your trajectory with Mojo? Well, it's been interesting because, you know, he just, just, you know, so Mojo died after uh, he was on the Outlaw Outlaw Country Cruise, obviously, because I work with Dave Alvin and and a number of people in that scene. I know a ton of people on that cruise and um, and I Mojo's uh, manager, Scott, AKA Bullethead was an old friend as well. And, um, you know, we just got wind that, you know, he played what was by all accounts a great gig. And then, you know, it was shut down the bar in typical Mojo fashion and then like had yes. breakfast, which was probably, you know, in Mojo, like biscuits and gravy, you know, a couple of fried eggs and then had a cardiac event. And that was that. And on some levels from knowing Mojo, that makes sense. But, Obviously, I've been in contact with a lot of people because he was he was very close with a lot I knew, um, including Dave, Cindy B. Berryhill, um, all the camper guys. I mean, he was a big, big part of our lives. I cannot remember the first time we played with him. I do know it was 1986. Um, camper Van Beethoven and Mojo played a lot. Not not I, I would. I would say 30 shows, if not more. Um, over a course of a few years, Mojo and Mojo Nixon and his partner at the time, Skid Roper, were uh, on venture booking, which was Frank Riley's uh, booking agency. And so we just got hooked up at a certain point. And I would venture to say it was probably around the time, it was probably after we'd done the first national touring, and maybe we we're going to have to do the second or so uh, national, which I think you saw. Yes. Um, so Jonathan had, uh, Jonathan Sagal had put up a flyer of us playing at UC Davis. And I think that's from June of 86. Um, so I think it, it dates back to that. I mean, it was certainly, you know, it's been interesting talking to you about stuff that's happened to me because I'm starting to see, wow, you know, memories like it's like Swiss cheese. It's interesting <laughs> what I remember, what I don't. But um, I do remember Mojo staying at my house. Uh, I lived in this kind of rundown uh, house of musicians. Imagine such a thing in Santa Cruz called Hubbard Street. It was 130 Hubbard Street. And it was a former nursery school. Uh, it, the front door didn't lock. Everybody's individual rooms had padlocks on the door. Um, the house had been a nursery school. All the rooms were painted primary colors. So blue, orange, green. Um, one of my housemates, uh, I think we're past the statute of limitations. There were a lot of uh, a lot of mushrooms in the house, which fit Mojo really well, um, because it's kind of one of the secrets of funding yourself when you have no money and are living in a band situation. Um, you know, I'm sure people are still doing it, but yeah, they they stayed there. Um, they stayed at my other house on May Street, so there were a couple of years. Mojo opened for us at the Fillmore. Uh, we played. I know we played Northwest because I have uh, very clear memories of being in Corvallis with Mojo. And what did your audience think of Mojo? Well, so I think this is important to kind of bring up and it it revealed itself slowly. Um, You know, when we first started playing with Mojo, I, you know, I watched him first couple of times. Like, it's kind of simple. What is this? I don't really get it. Um, cause you know, it's kind of silly and I'm not really right. a silly guy, um, even though camper had the silly element, I was always kind of fighting against it. 
you know, at least more interstellar overdrive at the very least. I wanted more noise. I wanted more volume. I wanted more that kind of sonic insanity um, and and um, less take the skinheads bowling. Although, what do I know? Because that song proves to be very important over time. Um, you know, my attitude has changed a lot. But that was me at the time. Watching Mojo continually, you started to see that it wasn't just the music. It was his interaction with the crowd and not only his interaction with the crowd, but the way he could take an audience and both insult them and get them on his side at the same time. And I think, you know, as a front man, that that is a very particular thread uh, to, to walk. It's it, Oh, yeah. In, in general, I have learned the crowd is mostly on your side unless you go completely rogue and insult them so uh so egregiously and so violently that there's no recovery and i certainly have worked with a couple of frontmen who were quite capable of doing these things uh mojo could both insult them and get them on his side um and he had uh this thing song part of the act however you want to refer to it where he you know i'm a mushroom maniac and he would get five gallon plastic water bottle and start beating on it and go into the crowd. And he's basically playing a bow diddly beat and doing a vocal improvisation about how he liked to take mushrooms. Uh And I watched him continually get audiences completely on his side after he'd gone and basically insulted them, made a pass at a woman in the front row, done some very, you know, I think he, he, Mojo's, I'm surprised Mojo wasn't canceled at a certain point, but I think his star had faded um, and, you know, he'd learned how to work media. You know, he was a radio DJ. So I think, you know, smart guy. So what we didn't know and we discovered because as we hung out with him more and found out, you know, he went by his actual name was Kirby. I think that was actually I think his first name was actually Neil. But, you know, once Kirby kind of revealed himself. I don't know if he graduated with this degree or not, but he had a religious studies background. And one of the things he had really focused on was shamanism. Huh. Right. And it was a serious it was a serious aspect of what the guy did. I think one of the reasons that Mojo resonated so much and one of the reasons that people uh, are mourning his passing so much is that, you know, there was a there was a real thesis to this guy. He would come across, you know, he's one of those people that didn't cross his cross as intellectual, but very much was. And especially if you hung out with him, you know, and I'm, we, we hung out a fair chunk. There was a there was a deep, thoughtful side to him. A very, a very kind side, but he was a complete maniac, you know. And I think uh, one of the things in uh, in talking with people in the last couple of days is, you know, Jonathan kind of Jonathan Sagel from Camper raised the point: Do they even make people like this anymore? And I think that's a good, I think that's a good point. Another friend of ours kind of pointed out that 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 Mojo was as much kind of out of like kind of, you know, the Ginsburg Burroughs, uh, you know. Kinky Friedman, um, you, you know the, the wild man, right? You know he 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 was a distinct personality who uh, basically what I'm trying to say is that Mojo represented a kind of artist that doesn't exist anymore, right? That is that is that is now going extinct. Like we are in the era of control. Right. We're in the era of everything being manicured and choreography on stage and 
you know, people, I often have people like, oh, I saw like Sushi and Stevens and like, you know, they're talking to me about the light show. Right. Right. Bojo's from an era where we didn't, you know, we didn't have the money to, to care. And part, part of what you did to elevate yourself was, you know, you, you embodied a personality and he had a really distinct one and a really interesting one. And it came out of a really, I think, long and great tradition of, you know, there's a particular particular thing about the American artists. You know, I think this it, there can be negative sides to this, but American, like rugged American individualism, does spring something very important, and, and I think that's why American art often is so so important and so cutting edge because we're such a crazy society. But part of you know part of America allows and has kind of idolized individualism or at least did i think in some ways that's changing and i don't think that's a good thing and i think mojo represented a through line to an older kind of personality yeah um, you know and, and you know and i think that's why it's important to, to to know because i think especially when he was in the clubs especially at the period of time where we were really working you know he was pulling something over on people that i don't think they entirely understood that that it is resonating with them now because I think they realize what they lost, but there's there's a lot of depth to it. Yeah, I think for a lot of people, it seems like it might have been the first time where there was no separation between stage and audience. You know, if you didn't come through the punk rock world and you're in college or something like that, and you're starting to dip your toe into what is the underground culture, that might have been your entryway. And the fact that like on his writers that people have been putting up, it's very... It's very simple, very sweet. He's just like, don't mess with the audience. And we want lights up the whole entire time. We don't want any smoke. We just want to see the audience. We want them to see us. It was really simple. It kind of created his own magic. And it seems like all these people are coming forward being like, I just adored him. He won me yeah. over. Well, you know, I mean, it's reductionist in its nature and the way that kind of Jonathan Richmond is, you know, it's like he's up there, it's like him and Skid, you know, it's basically washed up bass and, you know, a Gibson hollow body guitar through a twin reverb, you know, props. He's got a five gallon water bottle that he's beating on. He's got a television that he puts over his head for stuff in Martha's Muffin. It just is very humble, but it was done with, I mean, he had a, I mean, talk about energy. The guy was just like, I mean, bouncing around on the stage night after night, you know, and drunk. I mean, it's like, even when I was young and capable of dealing with, you know, putting myself through a lot, I couldn't keep up. You know, I don't have, I don't have the energy reserves of a Mojo Nixon. I never did. Um, you know, and it was interesting because, uh, you know, Dave Alvin was in the Pleasure Barons with him and he posted a video of Mojo and Country Dick singing a song called Death Train, which is at because they're both gone now. But, you know, Dave just said at that point, these guys are going so hard. Dave, who's not known for being short of energy on stage, would just go and have a smoke and have a beer and just like let them go. Um, wow. You know, I mean, you're talking to people who burn pretty hard. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, and I think, you know, I mean, you do pay for it. And I think Mojo did pay for it. But I think that's kind of you know, he stuck to his gun. That, that's who Mojo was. If there's a hereafter, he's not looking back on like, oh, wow, what a drag. He, you know, in retrospect, really appreciate is that Mojo and Bullethead Scott, his manager, like really kept this. They kept the personality of Mojo going through 
you know, both kind of indie rock phase, then they had kind of a rock and roll phase, and then you had like the radio DJ phase, and you know, the documentary, which I think is worth seeing. Absolutely, um, yeah. I will put a link in the show notes to it. And I and I think the Mojo Manifesto does kind of indeed hint at like stuff I'm talking about, which is you know, kind of the, there's a deep philosophy in this, which is you know, to to live to live an authentic life, you know, yeah. and it's, it's why when, you know, as somebody who works a day job and, and who still is insane enough to do this and often is wondering like, you know, should I just give up and go for the W2? I can't ever seem to bring myself to do it, but you know, I've had people I work with go, man, I wish I had your life. And I'm like, I don't think you do because <laughs> there's, there's a definitive, I could have a lot more money in the bank and I have money in the bank compared to a lot of people I know who've done this, you know, and I, you know, it's, it's an interesting, it's got careful what you wish for thing, you know, that the, the authenticity definitely comes with a price. Yeah. You know? and I think, I think Mojo knew that. And I think he was quite lucky in, 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 uh, in kind of going the radio DJ route and, 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 and pursuing stuff. There was definitely, uh, you know, there's a few stories, uh, Camper and Beethoven were, do you remember the Bob magazine? Oh, yeah. That was a Boston-based magazine, correct? Yeah. Flexi-discs and stuff in it. Yeah, they did flexi-discs. So there's a Camper and Beethoven, Mojo Nixon, uh, flexi-disc. This song is Two Below Something. I can't remember. We did our uh, Love is Like a Porpoise Mouth, the country country Joe song. And uh, anyhow, the Bob requested that we do a joint photo session with mojo and skid and we could only we were both on tour i think we were actually going out to meet rem as i recall you're on separate tours we're on separate tours okay okay and so you know this is this is pre-cell phone right and so we're talking with uh scott riley and trying to figure out where we're going to they're coming west and we're going east to meet REM and where are we going to cross paths? Uh-huh. And we realized that close to Little America in Wyoming was where we would be able to cross paths. So we basically timed our drive so that we would basically wake up in Little America around the time that Mojo and Skid and Scott would be there and do a photo shoot it's a it's a beautiful photo i mean i have like the silliest expression on my face but i think we're laying on the ground in a circle our heads are all in a circle kind of you know very monkeys or kind of like 1966 beatles-esque and scott took the photo um but you know it was a fond memory um and just the fact that these guys were such good sports you know that's hard especially in that era that's hard to coordinate you know and yeah you know, there's no way to check. He was like, are they going to be here? Because, you know, you can't like text somebody. He's like, are you, Nick, are you there? <laughs> we'll see, you know. And like, so we we pulled that off. And then, you know, just a, a lot of fun times touring. We um, we did a Northwest tour, I think it was later that year. And, uh, you know, there were a lot of mushrooms circulating. Um, and, you know, I used to like to eat a couple of stems of mushrooms before we played. And it was a, pretty typical thing for me to do not get too high but just just a little buzz mojo's mushroom technique was a little bit more as we would say towards the committed dose uh-huh. so we're playing uh oregon state and uh 
and we were playing in this uh, one of those old frat houses on that campus. You okay. know, like, like it's been there, it was probably built in the 1890s, kind of brick, you know, and it's like December in Oregon, as you know well, how lovely. Oh, yeah. It's toasty. Uh, toasty, yeah. Wet. <laughs> we're playing uh, this old academic building and we're staying in a frat house. And, you know, Oregon State is not the University of Oregon. It's, it's, uh, it, it, it's kind of got the anti Grateful Dead overtone to it. Um, and so Moj and I were kind of high and we were walking around and the crowd was pretty verging on pretty frat boy. And, uh, and you know what it's like to play like an old, like not really well, not well maintained academic hall where, you know, the seats are kind of, they squeak and the walls are kind of yeah. stained and you're like, what is that stain? Is that water? Or is that something else? And like the floor is completely, you know, the finish is long gone off the floor. It's just building scene, better days. And then, you know, Mojo and I are walking around and uh, he's like, Crew Rocker, you see that? See those guys? See those guys in there? And he's pointing at like the frat boys in the audience. And he's like, hey, that, that's the bad punchline. Those guys, that's the bad punchline. The questionable gig circumstances, bad punchline. See that? Points up at the sky. You know, it's a December Oregon sky, cloud drenched, stars barely like shining their way through. He's like, that's the good punchline. That that was Mojo. And that was kind of one of my favorite uh, favorite evenings with him. Um, but staying, he stayed at my house a couple of times and um, in more kind of psychedelic uh, psychedelic adventures, you know, there were a lot of mushrooms in my house. And in fact, we kept a bottle of orange juice because, you know, psilocybin will leach into the orange juice. Um, it's a really good, uh, it's uh, transductive, I think is the word. Uh, basically, okay. put mushrooms in orange juice. The acid in the orange juice will leach the psilocybin into the orange juice. So you don't have to eat the mushrooms, you just get the, you just, you know, it's the same principle as mushroom tea, but the, the acid is more efficient than the hot water. Just get the goodness. Just get the goodness. So, <laughs> you know, uh, Mojo and Skid and Scott and Scott's girlfriend were staying at, at this kind of like crash pad I lived in, and we had done a bunch of mushrooms, and we were sitting on the couch and watching TV and playing like old soul records. It was genuinely kind of a good time. But so Scott had his girlfriend, so obviously, like you know, we didn't like. Where's the couple going to go hook up? And like, well, we're going to go out in the van. So they they go out in the van and Skid and Mojo sleep on, you know, we had uh we had the called the the couch the acid couch. So I think I think Mojo slept on the acid couch and I'm sure Skid just kind of slept on the floor or something. But why was it called the acid couch? Because there was a lot of acid done on that couch. So, okay, I was I just wanted to make sure I it didn't I wanted to make sure it was that simple. Sorry. The Monster Doom first record, there's a song on there called Visions from the Acid Couch. Um and that so and just so you know, if the, you know the photograph of me on the cover of Our Beloved Rebel Revolutionary Sweetheart, where I'm like looking yes. at the TV, kind of like, you know, yeah, slightly baked. That was taken in this living room. So that it, that was taken at Hubbard Street by my friend Edie Winograd. Uh, so nonetheless, uh, Scott and his girlfriend sleep in the van and Mojo and Skid are in the house. And um, apparently in the evening, uh, Scott's girlfriend had to pee, but she didn't want to get up 
you know, put on her clothes and crawl in the house. So she's digging around in the van um, and she finds like this bottom of a, of a, you know, like half gallon of milk, like cut loose. It's like a little box. And she's like, well, hell, I'll just pee on this. She pees in it, throws it out the door. And the next morning, I'm making breakfast. Uh, Hubbard Street was, we, we like to make, breakfast was the good meal. So you just, like a lot of fried bacon, a lot of eggs. Mojo and Scott are all about bacon and eggs, but Skid, you know, was more like, I have some cereal out in the van. So he goes out to the van and uh, is uh, going to go eat his cereal. And uh, Scott Riley comes in and he's like, you got to see this. And so we go out <laughs> and he's eating cereal out of the box that Scott's girlfriend had taken the leak in the night before. And of course, these guys, I'm like, should we tell him? Like, oh, no, don't tell him. And uh, and Scott's like, so uh, what are you doing with that box? He's like, oh, yeah, this is this is my cereal box. And I found it in the gutter. I don't, somebody must have like thrown it out. You guys got to be careful with my cereal box. That was Skid. And that was just a kind of a typical episode of hanging out with Mojo. So, Skid, I know you're still around. I'm sorry. But, yeah, so that those are the kind of memories that we had. And also, uh, just in as far as just the transcendental nature of Mojo on stage, above and beyond, pranking Skid, uh, we played the Fillmore with Mojo. And, um, you know, everything that I was talking about that was in effect in – I saw him do – I saw him do this so many times, but basically took that crowd and that was close to sold out shows. You're talking a thousand people and he had them in the palm of his hand. Yeah. Just, just completely capable of, of leading a group of people, of, of getting people focused on him, focused on what he was doing and, and having a really good time, you know, and and the most, you know, in a silly but yet kind of profound way, right? In a, in, a, in a way that just, you know, as good music does, as good performance does, you forget about time. You forget about your place. You forget about what's going on, and you just get into that moment. And so that, yeah, too, is a really, really great memory of, you know, and that Fillmore show, I, just, I think my, my dad's third marriage had happened, and I, like, flew in, and I was completely, like, sleepless and crazy, and and I remember, you know, this was our first chance to open a tour to headline the Fillmore. And, you know, I'm like, I, my dad's getting married. And like, Frank Riley's like, I don't care who's getting married. You have to make that show. Right. So I right. go and do this wedding. I'm completely like out of my mind that we played that show. And just like, you know, I had great memories of Mojo just kind of pulling, pulling the crowd in. And, and in a lot of ways, he got them on our side before. We didn't have to do any work. Right. It was just. Yeah. I was going to say, you know, being in Gutter by Voices, we often had that too. We had amazing openers um, that, you know, New Pornographers, The Strokes, uh, My Morning Jacket, The Shins. It was always kind of awesome when you had a really cool opening band that, that you liked their energy or their songs. Um, and you could kind of be like, all right, let's go do our thing. You know, I, I always appreciated when when there was a really fantastic opening band yeah it's a, it's a great it's a great thing and i think that's why we wound up working with mojo so much you know it's just like it just it, it was very 
Mojo and Camper were very compatible. I think people, yeah, uh, you know, there's a, you know, I was complaining about take the skinheads bowling earlier, but you know, I mean, there's you under, especially as you get older, it's like you start to understand that the importance of levity, you know, and and there's a certain, it's a certain uh, profundity there that, uh, you know, we had a good time, you know, and that's 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 what it's about. And I want to touch on something that Jonathan said to you earlier. Do they make people like this anymore? I'm sure they do. I just don't know them. They're probably in the underground somewhere. But do you think there could ever be another Mojo Nixon? Well, I wonder, you know, and, and I hope I hope so. I think um, I think your thesis that maybe they do make people like this still. I think it's true. I think there are a lot of people who are not born to follow rules. You just don't have that inclination. But, you know, we're, we're, we're highly indoctrinated now uh, in, in ways that we weren't when we grew up because, you know, because of technology and because of how omnipresent it is, you know. Social media and cell phones particularly, I think, are something that, that it's something to be concerned about. And, and I, think, I think Mojo came about at a point, you know, Mojo's about 10 years older than me, came about at a point in time where it just wasn't really even on the radar, you know, where yeah. the ability to kind of run rampant, I mean, it was just economically, you were able to access a quality of living being an outsider that I think is harder to do now, you know, and I think it's actually an economic argument. Um, right. But I do, you know, I have a lot of younger friends who realize what kind of, uh, <laughs> what a game it is um, in a not good way right now. I mean, sure. you know, you're, you're like, how old's Riley now? 22? Like 26. Six. Oh, right. Yeah. See, oh, right. yeah. Yeah, we, they, they know, they get it, you know, they, they understand. And so, you know, yeah. I think we can only, as people who grew up, grew up in that and can appreciate it, it's like, it's our job to advocate for, you know, people who don't fit in boxes. Because the world, yeah, I agree. The world's better when you don't fit in a box. And I think that's why we are all missing mojos because you never really fit in a box. I always had a big love also for people who were, accidentally successful and weirdos. And he's the perfect example. That film, The Mojo Manifesto, shows completely how he was driven, but he would have he would still be playing this kind of music without success. Yeah. He seemed driven to just do his thing. And then there was a period where the world caught on. Right. And they followed him. And then, of course, you know, longevity in music is 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 very fleeting. Oh, yeah. But the fact that he created kind of an amazing band for the rest of his career, a four piece yeah. and that they they spoke the same language. They knew how to turn it on and they just went. They would just go, 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 go is impressive even as they were seeing like audiences kind of dwindle you know and, and shrinking which is a part of being a long a lifelong musician is you know at some point for most bands 
your popularity starts decelerating. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's 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 very, very hard to maintain. And Mojo really stuck to his guns, you know, but Martha Quinn, you know, God bless her, you know, I mean, that was really an avenue. Like he was, you know, there was a period of time in like 87 where, you know, he was definitely kind of starting to eclipse where Camper was at that point. I mean, yeah. really essentially stopped playing because, you know, he had grown into, you know, headlining his own shows and getting his own money and like and and, and that's kind of where we diverged i mean we certainly st- stayed in touch and then you know when he stopped working with skid and um you know that first four piece that he took in the studio i mean that was no roscoe amble and john doe and country dick on drums this is like that's not a slouchy band by any means you know and, and really rock and roll but like really good players doing it yeah, and I it came up in the email that he wrote to me about making that record because, and his choice of pro- producer on that oh, record. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and so, you know, we were talking back and forth about, I was like, this is what generally, here are some of the films that other artists on the show have picked. You know, Peter Buck, you know, looked at, you know, the R.E.M. documentary he hadn't seen, you know, John Cameron Mitchell looking at Gimme Shelter. Um, and people have done narrative films that are music-based, like Beyond the Valley Dolls or Velvet Goldmine, or they've done documentaries or the art of the music video. And this is what he wrote back. Dude, I could do Woodstock or Jimi Hendrix, both of which I saw 10 times at the midnight movies in high school, or either the Shane Pogues doc. But what I really want to talk about is a doc not made yet, The Replacements. Filmmaker Robert Gordon told me he had millions in backing money, and Paul said no. I would like to talk about why we need a replacements documentary, what would be in it, what would it be called. We would tie in the recent box sets and remixes, what made the replacements so great. I hired Jim Dickinson to produce me because of the replacements. And we can also talk about my movie, The Mojo Manifesto. (laughs) Mojo. And then his phone number. And I was like, for him to think outside the box for this show was so touching to me that he was like, I get your show, but I have an idea. I was like, that was so brilliant. And I kept telling people, I kept telling people, Mojo Nixon's coming on. They're like, oh, wow. And I said, yeah, but check this out. He wants to talk about an imaginary replacement documentary that's in his head. I was so excited. Um... I just, I'm just dying what it would have been called, what he saw in it. But the fact that he was like, he loved music. He was obsessed with the replacement still. Mojo Nixon was a known thing that was still going. And he was like, still like the replacements were the greatest band ever. I love that. Yeah. I mean, I, and just, but that's Mojo, you know, it's just like, he's, kind of guy is going to come at you with an angle, right? It's not, it's not necessarily, but I mean, I think that's where your show accelerates is like going with the angles and he, he got it right away, you know? And I think that's, that's just part of the magic of the guy. And now I'm like, you know, I just read that trouble boys book and talk about a dour landscape of the replacement. Uh, like I wonder what his angle on it was. Cause yeah, I was excited to talk to him about it too, because I told Bob Muir, the, the writer of that book, I love that book. Yeah, it's great. And one day I was like, I want to read it, but I just read it recently. And what I decided to do was I read it backwards. 
chapter by chapter Rashomon style. And so what I would do was I'd read the end and then I would go to the next chapter and it would be like, you know, the beginning of the chapter, you'd be like, oh, this is where Bob is no longer in it. He's just, you know, but you'd get it backwards and it was perfect. And I told Bob that I said, your book is as good forward as it is backwards. And then Bob was like, that is one of the nicest compliments anyone's ever said about that book. It's amazing. And yeah, again, I just love that in Mojo's mind, he was dying to have something made about, you know, his favorite band. And he, you know, he had a universe that he believed in, you know, and I, and I you know, the replacements are definitely part of it, you know, and the, and the other thing too, you raised it briefly, but, you know, talking about the Shane uh, McGowan documentary, he wanted, I mean, I think he opened for the, uh, for the pose and like him. Yes. He was that. tight with them. Very interesting because, you know, I had some minimal Pogue exposure and I mean, I thought about this a few times, like, man, it was weird enough being around Shane in my own right. What was it like with Mojo and Shane? Like, how insane was that? I can only yeah. imagine. I And I would have loved to have been the fly on that wall. But yeah, yeah. I'm assuming they were brothers. Oh, yeah, I, I, I bet. So I was just a shy kid hanging out in the backstage. But like Mojo didn't do that shit. So right. Probably a deep hangover to start. <laughs> just, just a bit. Just a bit. Just a bit. You sent me a file that I will put in this uh, episode of Mojo Nixon performing live. And somewhere almost near the end of the set, he does a Camper Van Beethoven song. anything about the story behind that because it is bonkers it is bonkers and it's great and i and it was just it was just surfaced to me uh by my friend little mike um right after mojo died mojo when he used, we used to play with each other sometimes he would you know do the don't do that where you know he'd like hint it take the skinheads bowling or throw you know because in skinheads bowling is like two chords and he's just like He's just going to start singing it, you know, and you're like, can it? And you're like, don't, you're not supposed to do that. And he just didn't care. Just, you know. So he teased the audience with like, ah, oh, yeah. here you go. But no, 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 no. Yeah. Just, <laughs> and he was always like that, or, you know, ambiguity song. I remember hinting, hinting at that. You know, he certainly played with us a lot, you know, and a lot of our songs are pretty simple. So he probably had them figured out, but I had not heard that. And uh, it was, uh, it was just super touching because, you know, I mean, it's just like, it's completely Gonzo version. I mean, it, what's the intro is like longer than the uh, intro of the song is longer than the song itself. 
It's true. And he's just screaming in pain. Yeah. And it's just, yeah, it's, it is a, again, like you would expect, it's, it's not a traditional cover. It's only from his mind. And it completely, if you didn't know it was a camper cover, you would have been like, this is a killer Mojo Nixon song. I don't know what this is. This isn't on anything. Maybe he just made it up on the spot. Well, he was making up half of it on the spot. (laughs) (laughs) It's just, I mean, it's a beautiful thing because it just really, you know, that's testimony to his spontaneity and his intelligence and sense of humor and, and, you know, and all all of the, the good things that made him, you know, the legendary person that he was, you know, and still is. Well, Victor, thank you so much for coming on and talking about your times with Mojo Nixon. It it was uh, really amazing to see the outpouring of love and energy for him. I, it seems like he would just be floored by the amount of people who just uh, miss him and really appreciated what he was giving to this world. And definitely... He took up a lot of space, and it there's a you know, it's uh, it's it, there's there's a lot of space on Earth now that he's gone. Yeah. So we, we definitely are left with a void. But I appreciate you coming up with this idea. It's, it's it was good to talk to talk about him. He was definitely, you know, Camper doesn't always agree on things, but I think we all agree that Mojo was very important to us, and and, a, and was a really it was a really good time hanging out with him. And we'll definitely miss the guy. Indeed. Thanks so much, Victor. Thank you, Chris.